Chapter 4 Kilauea Big Island, Hawaii, April 2009 Last night, I woke up in the middle of the night in a panic. We are on an erupting volcano in the middle of the ocean. But this is not a useful way to think. We have only just arrived. The amount of lava that comes out of the Kilauea volcano could pave a road to the moon and back again, five times a day, every single day. At the crater's edge is Volcano House, opened in 1865. For 90 years, Volcano House held a register where visitors were asked to describe exactly what they saw the volcano doing when they were standing at the crater's edge. Thus, a 90-year-long daily history, or a volcanic diary changing hands each entry, was constructed. A communal biography of a volcano. This reminds me of a conversation I had with a volcanologist about volcanology as a science. Ultimately, a volcano's life is much longer than yours or mine, so to learn about a volcano, study it, get to know it. You must accept that you may never see its full range of behaviors firsthand. A calm volcano might have a violent eruption 400 years from the day you first meet, and even multi-generations of volcanologists may still only cover 300 years in the long life of an active mountain. So inbuilt into the process is the tradition of passing along everything you know about your volcano to the next volcanologist who will be there when you are gone. Inbuilt into the story of each person who gets to know a volcano is the story of that same person's obsolescence. A volcano perpetually erases its own history. Lava Encounters Today, we drove up to the summit of the volcano. We stopped at a vast, expansive lava flow formed in 1985. Actually, it was quite frightening. You really have the feeling that the lava is an organism. The way the crust forms over these tubular flows is almost like reptilian skin. Where it is completely smooth, it looks like starfish tentacles or a little bit like the roots from the trees in the fossil grove in Glasgow. Certain areas look like details from Renaissance paintings with heavy Italianate velvet drapery. There are sections of braided lava, long and ornate, like a majestic set of cornrows for the volcano. Some sections look like the most intricate woven ropes used aboard ancient fishing vessels, so delicate they look hand-spun. Sometimes it is very hard to believe it was all made through a naturally occurring process. Ken has agreed to take us out onto the active flow on Thursday. A dream. New York was experiencing erupting steam vents and explosive craters on Broadway. 
buildings collapsing, trying to find my way home across continents, plane parts falling off, wires coming out. One person was killed in the eruption on Broadway on 79th Street in a gaping hole about the size of a grand piano. An internal landslide appeared inside the chasm. In the newspaper is a photograph of the person who was buried in the street following the landslide, head laying to the side as if asleep, like the David Warnerovich photograph, body buried, face exposed, light, weight, pumice. The Boat we joined a boat heading out to the lava entry ocean points to see the process of new landmass in formation. We climbed aboard the boat while still on shore. From a height, the boat was dropped into the water. Night swell still rolling in at 5 a.m. In the distance, with slight sun rising, the plumes. And then, with distance changing velocity, we were almost in the flow. We were so close to the lava's edge, I thought we would be engulfed. The air was unbelievably thick, a substance filling the empty caverns of your throat. Billows of smoke surround us. I began to count and hold my breath until the smoke dispersed. Three seconds to go. Now cool air. Three seconds. Now, cool air. I looked down at my chest for a moment, wearing only a tank top against my skin, thick air swirling and too close to the phenomena, tiny wisps of invisible down protecting my skin that throw back to more animal days were entirely encased in airborne lava mud. Every hair a miniature lava stalactite, physical geology. Each part of the flow, like an anatomy lesson, muscle opened, bone revealed, blood and tissue all there, like holding a heart in your hand. The secret lava tube. We heard it was possible to enter a hidden lava tube we were able to join an expedition that week. En route to the lava tube through the rainforest, we passed a mobile seismograph unit, a nondescript rectangular box containing monitors to follow movements of the volcano. Boxes were implanted into the slopes at regular intervals, like the heart rate monitor my mother had to wear following unknown flutters and a faint feeling. Our guide also had a detector hung around his neck, a mechanical canary to pick up sulfur dioxide levels in the subterranean air. We went down a ladder, deep underground, inside the artery of a volcano. The volcano is like a body. It pumps lava throughout its system and breathes in and out through the mouth of a crater. A lava tube is like an artery coming out of the ventricle of a volcanic heart. New arteries form as needed. Layers lie down, one upon another. 
Through this process, new land is formed. Once inside the lava tube, the walls appeared to be covered in the finest silver latticework, moonlit lace clinging to every surface, invisible until your headlamp made contact with its contours, a mosaic of mica, the moon, opals, and hammered metal. In fact, it was a rare type of bacteria that only lives in several cave environments throughout the world. In the search to understand how chemotherapy could work, these particular bacteria were a critical piece of the puzzle. A most unexpected revelation. To be standing inside of a lava tube on an island 2,500 miles from anywhere else on Earth and realize these organisms thriving inside a lava tube had drastically affected my father's quality of life. I want to call him and tell him, I am standing, looking at the cure. Time is so inflexible when someone dies. Inside the cave are other forms of life, insects so small they look like floating dust in a patch of sunlight. Tiny spiders weave horizontal webs that shiver with your breath. At the tip of each lava stalactite is an amber hue, as when in a molten state, metals are heavier than liquid rock and sink to the bottom of each volcanic finger. When we entered the lava tube, we were told we could not touch any part of it except for the rock floor. Even the natural oils from your fingertips would wipe out the entire bacteria colony. Kilauea Iki, Traces of the 1959 Eruption We started our descent to the crater floor, a steep way down through rock cuts and fan branches, a jumble of lava boulders and fissures, there is nothing human here, no braided ropes of spun obsidian or constructions of cut basalt columns as elegant as Ionic or Doric, just rubble, heaps of geological detritus. If you were to dig into the ash, would it open into a lava tube? Scooping out some more, would you reach down back into the magma chamber below the crust? the plates, down to the core. Driving up the volcanic ascent of the chain of craters road in reverse, I feel totally emotional. Maybe after being in that place for the first time, seeing that, what the volcano can do. Maybe because time melts in this lava flow and I want to find an imprint from the early living room. Those rainforest branches remind me of the forest which thrived behind the orange leather couch my mother was so proud of that she bought herself for her first apartment on East 77th Street in the days when that part of town was not the Upper East Side. A different city. Multiple stabbings at the corner store. Hungarian restaurants on every other corner. In truth, a New York I miss so much, 
I want to lay down and press my cheek against the sidewalk to make contact, corporeal understanding. But it is gone. I digress. The canopy in the living room was grown from a cutting taken from a plant in my grandfather's apartment on Utica Avenue in Brooklyn. A sharp feeling. A shadow fossil of camping out together in the one room with an air conditioner, cold noodles with sesame sauce to bring the temperature down on two hot summer days in New York in 1978. This indoor canopy died a few years ago. No one remembered to water the plants in the empty apartment. Soot and dust settled over the room, sifted through the window screens cracked open to let fresh air in. Urban ashfall. Out on the lava. Today, we would meet the active flow. Ken, the volcanologist, arrived with three volcanology students. We would visit both plumes and explore the active flow areas. We're instructed to have gloves handy, as new flow was pure, brittle, volcanic glass and would slice your hand open without fail if you stumbled along the way. The plumes were way in the distance, with fields of lava to cross, before we met face to face. We passed the remains of small shacks eaten by the lava flows, corrugated bits of roof and wall left embedded mid-flow. The lava was very irregular. Surfaces went up and down like broken icebergs in the spring thaw. We passed lava flows one week, one month, nine months old. We crossed a river of lava that had only recently stopped gushing. The lava was like burnished brass here. Traces of Pele's hair could be found in shallow fissures of rock made only yesterday or just before. Even with the knowledge it was glass, I could not stop myself from picking up just one strand, like Persephone. A thin glass shard went straight into my fingertip, through my skin, a drop of blood. Pele's tears were at my feet. The sun was strong, very strong, and I felt my long sleeve stick to my arms, my back, textile, and sweat. We were only a quarter of the way there, and I began to push the idea of sunstroke very far off and away. There was no time, no space for sickness. Only now to meet the lava. My hat clung to my head, Sunscreen was reapplied as thick as paste. Ken said to be aware certain surfaces might appear solid, but were air bubbles formed above the flow. Your foot would drop through the crust, but no more than a few feet. The plume in the far distance came into closer focus. You could now describe it in blocks rather than miles away. The volcanology students would stoop and bend down, taking samples of ash and sulfur. We were near the plume. The ground was hot. The sound was very strong, like a steam engine mixed with a shrieking wind tunnel or an amplified teapot hitting boil, a loud, hollow sound 
an airplane passing directly overhead, an autumn storm. We situated ourselves in a small dip of the cliff face. One volcanology student sat on a perch and looked out at the lava. The two other students were a couple, two girls, very into each other, but all quite new. I tried to imagine what it must be like to be in love for the first time on this volcano. There was one open lava pool, shocking crimson, lava moving as if a normal body of water, like the Hudson, only blood red. Lava bombs flew into the air. We walked through a field of Pele's hair. To our left was a frozen waterfall. It was as if a switch had been flipped and time stopped. Cascading falls rushing over an old bench stood still. Gulfus, Godifus, every waterfall I had ever known, but stuck in perpetual freefall, like dripping candle wax over the edge of an old shoebox. As Mark Twain said, a truly petrified Niagara. A dream. Two halls, two rooms, two doors, two beds, very high off the ground. I am borrowing our dog Maxwell. He died many years ago, even though that is not his name anymore. Back at home, at the apartment on 86th Street, the room in double mirror form. There's a stairwell, more like a cliff edge or a chasm, sinking deep between two doors. There's only one way to cross this precipice. The lower landing is a treacherous drop. I have to wade through the hall with Maxwell in my arms in order to keep him, watch him. But how can I hold him and climb down and across the chasm? Two dangling chairs of precarious stepping stones that may become dislodged from this crumbling cliff-edge path. Two beds. Two tall beds to cross, floating in a slow-moving flow. And all the while, holding Maxwell close. His fur is even more mahogany than I remember. The volcanologist Maurice and Katja Kraft dreamt of kayaking down a river of molten lava. Field notes. Lips and eyes burning a little bit today. You begin to obliterate through the act of watching lava. Each small part that gets made of new rock breaks off a little part of your body. You have no sense of distance, perception of space, only walking with one foot in front of the other. Flashlight over lava. Rough. No idea where you are, what you are traveling over, just motion over rock. In this sense, it is like caving, but strangely outdoors in an expansive space, rather than the interior space of subterranean architecture. You don't feel like you will stumble and incinerate in a hidden fissure, but instead, just break apart into volcanic particles, becoming part 
of the extended volcano. Part Empedocles My sleep was slightly more agitated last night. It is our last day here. Acid edges set in. The trip home is so epic. How will we ever make it all the way there? And the real truth. I don't want to leave here. I am becoming part of the volcano, so how can I be expected to leave? What has passed between us is too physical, too personal. I feel like my arms could fit between the braided channels of lava that I could spoon into the crushed drapery in sleep in the fields. We stayed in a town called Pahoa. Not long ago, lava from Kilauea covered the entire neighborhood. <laughs>